0: Perhaps the most publicized case of hyperemesis is comedian Amy Schumer. so bad. Who documented her battle in an HBO special. And I just threw up blood. Asia says it was only through Schumer that she learned about the condition. Though her doctor did offer her anti-nausea medication, she says he never once said the word hyperemesis, telling her later he didn't want to scare her.
1: What happened there? Not giving a patient a correct diagnosis because we don't want to scare a patient or we don't want to hurt their feelings is not only bad medicine, it's just plain unethical. That interview was just a little excerpt from something that came out on the Today Show on January the 24th, 2024, just about a month ago. And from last month to this month, really it's a Big time for hyperemesis gravidarium because we've learned so much about this condition, and it's actually the topic of a new publication that came out in the Green Journal that focuses on inpatient management of the condition through ACOG's Clinical Expert Series. Yeah, this is hot off the press as well, and so is new information about its cause. This clinical expert series from ACOG, from the Green Journal, just came out on February the 1st, 2024. This clinical expert series is fantastic, and I have to say, it does have roots right here from my home state of Texas, because it comes from UTMB in Galveston, a historic institution for medicine and for obstetrics. We're going to touch on that in this episode. But I also want to focus on the the two new known causes of this because once you can identify what is making women sick, then we can do targeted therapy and block it. Would that be amazing or what? Not just for hyperemesis. But for nausea and vomiting to begin with, so we don't have to just use the same old Phenergan and Compazine and Zofran, which have their place, and I'm not minimizing that at all. But if we can get to the root of the issue, that really is a game changer. And this brand new biomarker that we've just figured out was honestly just off the heels of new data from the last Two months, and I'm going to get into that again in this episode. We are going to touch on this clinical expert series. We're going to talk about a new, a separate RCT that also is talking about hyperemesis. And when you read the title, you're like, why would somebody even study this? And duh, and I'm going to explain that as well in this episode. So let's talk about new developments on HG, hyperemesis gravidarium, and how to keep patients feeling better and out of harm's way in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDSE. Within the last two months, we've admitted two different patients with hyperemesis to our antepartum service. Now, one, oddly enough, also was diagnosed with influenza B. And the second patient who's still on our service was actually also positive for THC. So was it the flu in the first patient making her sick? And in the second case, was it cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome? Well, it's hard to tell because remember that hyperemesis gravidarium is a diagnosis of exclusion. we got to rule out everything else. Now, in both of these cases, these patients had been sick since very early on after identification of their pregnancy early in the first trimester. So it's unclear if they've had hyperemesis and then they got the flu in case number one, uh, or they had hyperemesis and then tried to self-medicate with THC because marijuana takes away nausea, right? No, not always. Uh, And then obviously use that to try to remedy her symptoms. So it's very complicated in these specific cases because by the book, Hyperemesis gravidarium is a rule out of everything else. It's not cholelithiasis, it's not a viral syndrome, it's not some other GI issue, uh, it's not self-inflicted. So once you rule out everything, then you're left with hyperemesis gravidarium. However, the initial treatment of both of those conditions, like the flu or cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, is kind of the same. It's correction of electrolytes and acid-base status, is giving a rapid IV uh, correction, it's watching for uh, hyponatremia and hypocalcemia, hypermagnesia, and uh, hyperkalemia, it's, it's pretty much the same deal, except that the flu has to wear itself out, uh, and with, hi- with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, the trick is of course alter behavior, uh, and, and not have the patient do that anymore. Now, oddly enough, we also have another episode on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome back in 2020, so you can go into the archives, but there is a very characteristic, almost pathognomonic trait in patients who have a cannabinoid hyperemesis condition, and that's hot baths, right? So remember, hot showers, hot baths, there's something with that on the skin that not only makes them feel better, but almost takes away their nausea. And in this second patient that we have admitted it right now, we asked her very nonchalantly. and She was very open. Yes, I, I take edibles. I mean, those are like a secret. And we got her permission for uh, a, a talk screen because she had mentioned that she had done marijuana in the past. And she said, yes, you can check me. We don't do anything covertly. Uh, so we had her permission. And then we asked her, hey, any, anything at home that you do that makes you better? I mean, what exactly do you, do you do to try to get rid of your nausea? And she said, well, sometimes I take uh, hot showers and it makes me feel Feel better. So the next question, of course, was, well, do you do that a lot? She said, yes. So again, it's very unclear if both of these patients just had regular old hyperemesis, because it wasn't exclusion at the exclusion of other conditions, or if it was a background foundation, and then other things were added to it. The point is, don't just label them, oh, they're hyperemesis, that's it, check the box, go in and give them IV fluids, and it's all kind of one cookie cutter treatment. You gotta look for other things. You gotta look for organic issues so that you can fix it, so hopefully they can get better. And again, if you identify flu, that's one thing. If they have potential cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, that's patient education. And we shared with her the data on that as well. So you do have to look for other things because most definitions of hyperemesis gravidarium, even though they vary by professional society and by country, most of them have that as a diagnosis of exclusion after other both psychological or organic factors have been ruled out. Now, some definitions include a certain percentage of weight loss. Others do not. So for us here in the U.S., ACOG states is basically recalcitrant nausea, vomiting in pregnancy uh, at the exclusion of, of other uh, potential etiologies with a supportive criteria of 5% w- uh, weight loss from pre-pregnancy weight, large ketoneuria or electrolyte uh, abnormalities, right? So those are supportive criteria. But what is required from the college is we've ruled out other stuff, she can't keep anything down, uh, and there's persistent nausea and vomiting, okay? So everybody kind of agrees with that, where they alter is the supportive criteria. Does it have to be 5% weight loss? Does it have to be electrolytes? Some are just very broad and go, look, if the, if the patient just cannot take anything in uh, and they have signs of dehydration, then that's hyperemesis. That's like the Windsor International Criteria. So there's different uh, uh, definitions based on who you ask. The idea is take it seriously uh, and don't ignore it because very quickly these patients can decompensate. They start with metabolic alkalosis because of the rapid loss of hydrogen uh, chloride, HCL, uh, and acidity from the GI tract. Remember, that's one of the main places that uh, acid uh, components are lost from the body. And then they can quickly go with volume contraction as the tissues become ischemic into metabolic acidosis. So the first thing is, is contraction, metabolic alkalosis, and then they can go to metabolic acidosis. And the worst thing is that if they get real electrolyte abnormalities, they can have neurological sequelae, they can have cardiac arrhythmia. so take them seriously. Uh, and I remember years ago, guys, from the ER, One of my buddies who's in emergency medicine calls and goes, Hey, this lady's back again. This is her third visit. And number three is like baseball. For us, three strikes and that's it. You got to stay. We got, obviously, something's being missed. We take that seriously and you stay. Sometimes we admit on the first visit, Uh, although first visit typically is done with outpatient medical therapy. Second, possibly adjustment. And then third, that's it. No brainer. That's do not pass go at our institution. That's an automatic admit with the ability to admit earlier than the third ER visit if they're sick enough. Okay? And I remember my buddy said, oh, this woman, she comes back again. She doesn't look that sick. It doesn't matter how she looks. It's what does her labs say because her labs tell the truth. And yes, she was ketotic. Yes, she had some electrolyte abnormalities. And no, the question was, do you want me to just, you know, do we just replace it and and get things uh, tuned up in the ER, or are you going to admit? Of course, you're going to admit. Take hyperemesis seriously, guys. There's also data that those ketone bodies in the first trimester, especially during organogenesis, that pass through the placenta, they can actually lead to some altered neurodevelopment in the child. So persistent ketosis is not good. Ketone bodies on the child have been linked not just to certain malformations, but also to neurodevelopmental issues. And this is always, again, an evolving uh, issue in the data that having them clear ketones is important for overall pregnancy health uh, and baby safety. So pay attention to these patients, quick admission, get them aggressive fluid management, but not too aggressive, because remember, if you correct sodium deficiency too fast, you're going to mess up their pons. Remember central pontine myelolysis, especially if you're getting ready to do your oral boards. That's the little minutia that people go after, because people forget. That's why we're here. So let's play that game, shall we? Let's say you're sitting at the oral boards and, like, okay, well, tell me one of the uh, issues with rapid replacement of sodium or sodium uh, without being rechecked in a hyperemesis patient. <laughs> The correct answer is, well, yeah, we got to watch that very carefully. We got to know what her baseline sodium is and then either do just gentle replacement with something like lactated ringer, which is much more physiologic than just normal saline because prolonged normal saline in a dehydrated patient could lead to acute tubular injury of the kidney. So like two liters within the first two hours of a presentation of lactated ringers is great for hydration. But we've got to correct that sodium slowly because rapid correction causes osmotic demyelination syndrome, otherwise known as central pontine myelolysis. And that is devastating. So that's why you have to pay attention to electrolytes, not just potassium, not just magnesium and calcium, all of which can be affected guys with hyperemesis. But watch that sodium. Rapid correction of sodium without uh, paying attention to to the sodium values could lead to injury. Now, that's not going to happen if the patient just presents and she just started puking like three hours ago. But it doesn't take a lot of time for for this to happen. Typically, it's uh, after about two to three days of hyponatremia from hyperemesis that rapid correction could cause this condition. And typically it's with, I'm talking about severe potassium deficiencies like values under 120 milliequivalents per liter, right? Not these mild little numbers like, oh, she's 134, uh, you know, 130, that's important. But it's when it's severe hyponatremia with a serum sodium less than like 120 that if you just slam in normal saline quickly, they could be, it could become a problem, right? So gentle correction, which is why LR is very nice. It's very physiologic. And in general, if you are going to correct a very low serum sodium, it should be done over about 24 hours, it takes like a day. And it should only be done raising that sodium, that serum sodium, uh, about eight to 12 milliequivalents per liter per 24 hours and I think that's even that's a little aggressive that makes me nervous I usually tell the residents try to correct it not to exceed six to eight milli equivalents per liter per 24 hours again that's with severe hyponatremia all right now remember severe hyponatremia LR is not going to do it you have to use either two or three percent hypertonic saline but do it very slowly with serial uh, serum sodiums or, or, or chemistries uh, to follow its level, all right? So remember normal serum sodium, remember what, what your goal is, and remember to correct it slowly if it's severely depleted to prevent central pontine myelolysis. The goal, of course, to keep sodium is around 135 to around 145. That's normal, so 135 to about 145. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yes, I'm going to get into the two new protein markers that are likely central to the development of hyperemesis and nausea and vomiting in general. Uh, But it's amazing how much we've come to learn, right? Because I remember I learned in medical school, the cause of this is just idiopathic. We don't know. Likely it's an evolutionary adaptation. That's what I learned. As the body tries to protect the child, tries to keep toxins out, nausea and vomiting occur. That sounds beautiful. It's a nice theory. But there's got to be more to it than that. Then came the estrogen issue. Well, women get nauseated with estrogen, so it must be the estrogen issue. And there's very high levels of estrogen with things like moles, so that has to be the cause, and with multiple uh, fetuses, multiple gestations. Well, yes, estrogen does make women sick. Some women are susceptible to estrogen itself, but it's more than that. So estrogen has a role, yes, but probably not the main role here. Now I'm going to get into these biomarkers in just a minute. But before I do, I want to highlight a a publication that came out just this month on the 15th of February, 2024. So this just came out last week. And sometimes you have to scratch your head and go... Wow, I mean, somebody did an RCT on this. I could have told you this likely was not going to work. Now, before I give you this, I'm not minimizing the work of these authors because, man, it took them from February the 10th, 2021, until January the 6th, 2023, to recruit 124 women for this RCT. Okay. And it's published in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics. And it's a good journal. So, uh, I'm not minimizing it at all. So if you know one of the authors of this, I'm not throwing them under the bus at all. I'm just saying, didn't we kind of know this already? It's a little, it's it's a little interesting what people study. So l- let me let me tell you what they found, and you tell me if this is eye opening, like you've never heard of this, or you're like, well, yeah, duh, kind of, you would kind of figure that sh- this would happen. The title of this RCT, it's level one evidence is oral rehydration therapy versus intravenous rehydration therapy in the first 12 hours following hospitalization for hyperemesis gravidarium and RCT. Does that make sense? So, hey, I know you're puking your guts out, um, but let us we're going to try to correct your electrolytes here, try to make you feel better. But one group, we're going to give you some electrolytes to drink, and then the other, we're going to do IV hydration. Now, remember, these patients are being admitted for what? Hyperemesis gravidarium, aka inability to keep fluid down. So, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm no genius or anything, but I'm going to bet that the oral hydration group probably was not effective because that's why they're admitted. So, these poor women, I mean, could you imagine, hey, I know you I I know you're here for not being able to keep anything down here's how we're going to treat you. We're going to see what you can keep down. Uh, no, give me some damn IVs. (laughs) I mean, so not minimizing the study at all. But that's exactly what they found. Quote, oral replacement therapy was inferior to intravenous therapy in two primary outcomes and three secondary outcomes. No, I'm not going to go into details in this publication because it's, I'm just not doing that. Uh, because I just... Let me just be honest. I don't like this study. Who is going to admit a patient for hyperemesis and just do oral replacement? They can't keep anything down. Hello? So their conclusion was, quote, intravenous rehydration therapy should remain the first line rehydration therapy in the early inpatient treatment of hyperemesis, end quote. Now, if that is news to somebody that women that being admitted for hyperemesis need IV fluid replacement, wow, wow. Oh my goodness, I'm I'm definitely not making fun of the results at all. It's just I kind of thought we knew that. See, this is how I'm likely going to get my ass kicked in some parking lot one day. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and tell you about the two likely etiologies of nausea, vomiting, and pregnancy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. As for etiology of this thing, so it looks like we're getting pretty darn complete here in figuring this thing out. And there's two main molecules here, and we're going to talk about them and where that data came from, and they're also referenced in the new Clinical Expert series that we've already referenced, all right? One of them is the first protein is GDF15, and this was published in the journal Nature just last month in January 2024 although he got some news uh, and some press in December 2023. The title of this publication is GDF-15 Linked to Maternal Risk of Nausea and Vomiting During Pregnancy. This is kind of neat because even though this was a lot of people, including people from the NHS, from Sri Lanka, uh, it also included people right here, of course, from the U.S., out of Keck School of Medicine, uh, from the University of Southern California in L.A. I know a a lot of those faculty. It's a phenomenal place. So out of the journal Nature from January 2024, GDF 15. All right, guys, this is fascinating. Listen to this, okay? Because it, it's a little complicated, but, but it really is not. So first of all, I have to say, the 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 author from the Keck School of Medicine, uh, I've seen many interviews with her. I, I'm kind of a fan. She's fantastic. And she herself was uh, a, a victim of hyperemesis gravidarium. So she, she was vested in this, right? She was like, I got to fix this for not just for my children, but for others as well. And the work that they did is amazing, all right? Because it's not just like, oh, hey, hey, here's this protein, and this is, gonna, this is what's going to make you sick. It's deeper than that. It has to do with exposures and sensitivities before pregnancy uh, and then rapid rise during pregnancy. Okay, so let me explain. So this GDF, this Growth Determining Factor 15, there is a sensitivity to this. So let me explain. Higher GDF-15 levels in maternal blood are without doubt associated with vomiting in pregnancy and hyperemesis. Okay, so the higher the value in pregnancy, the more that women get sick. But hold on, it, there's more to it than that. They actually used a spectroscopy to measure variants of GDF-15. And what they found is, that in the vast majority of of patients gdf15 in the maternal plasma that came from the fetal placental unit so this is coming from from the placenta okay the babe the, the fetal component of the placenta when that level is very high that's what triggers a nausea but but watch this low levels of gdf15 in the non pregnant state increase the risk of developing hyperemesis once pregnancy occurs, all right? So in those patients who have this genetic variant of like, hey, their body just doesn't produce GDF-15 at all, when this, remember, we're um, talking that there's some degree of GDF-15, in the body outside of the fetal placental unit. But in pregnancy, it comes from the fetal placental unit. Does that make sense? So I have right now, as I'm taping this podcast, I have levels of GDF-15 and I don't have a fetal placental unit as far as I know of. That's just a joke. Okay, so fetal placental unit makes this thing, but obviously it exists in the body uh, in in other times as well. So watch this. In people who have the variant of GDF-15 that have very low levels of as their baseline, but then they get pregnant, boom, it's that shift. It's that step-off, right? The very low levels of GDF-15, so the body's like, I, that That thing's foreign to me, I don't know what that is. Fetal placental unit makes that naturally, and boom, that, that, this biomarker goes up, uh, this uh, growth determining factor rises, and the body's like, puke, puke, puke. <laughs> That's that step-off. However, if the patient has a higher level of GDF-15 chronically, in the non-pregnant state, like happens with beta thalassemia, all right. So women with beta thal seem to have higher baseline levels of GDF15. Then when they get pregnant and the body sees GDF15 coming from the fetal placental unit, it's like, oh hey, what's up? I've seen you before. Don't react. You're not foreign. I I know you. You're there's more of you, but I but I know you. And so they have very low levels of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Joget, that's fascinating, right? So GDF-15, high values in, in the background of tonically low values is what triggers nausea and vomiting. And those women with like beta-thal who have chronic high levels of this, they tend to have a protection of nausea, vomiting, and hyperemesis because their body is no longer freaked out by the high levels of GDF-15 coming from the fetal placental unit
0: but dr fazo says hope is on the horizon in a recently published study she documented a genetic link to the illness we found that there's a 17-fold increased risk of having it if your sister had it her goal to develop a genetic test for hyperemesis as well as treatments to block the symptoms
1: what amazing research. So, yes, that was Dr. Faso, who was part of the authorship. She's the author from Keck School of Medicine, who was also featured on that Today Show episode from January 24, 2024. Well-deserved recognition because this is a game-changer. Could you imagine having a vaccine or whatever or, or, or some kind of targeted uh, therapeutic to hit GDF-15? Amazing or potentially to predict who could get it. We already know that chronic, uh, chronically low levels of this, and then when it rises in pregnancy, puts patients at risk. Just amazing, fascinating stuff. Okay, now if I was the other protein marker who is responsible for hyperemesis, um, I would be like, uh, yo, hello, I'm, I'm over here. Y'all forget about me because this came out uh, years ago. So what about IGF? BP-7, insulin-like growth factor binding protein number seven is over here. That's been published since 2018. So yeah, you talk about two proteins that are now found uh, on the fetal placental surface, on placental tissue, GDF-15, and insulin-like growth factor binding protein number seven. It's a lot of letters. I'm going to get into it in a minute. Uh, Those are the two most likely culprits here. But we've kind of known this one, I mean, bp 7 that's insulin-like growth factor binding protein 7, that was published in Nature, the same publication, same journal that we just talked about, back in 2018 by the same author, that's Marlena uh, Fajo. So she's been at this for years, and now we know it's probably a complement of these two uh, biomarkers. Now, maybe there's more but this is huge progress so igf bp 7 insulin like growth factor binding protein 7 and GDF15 are the two protein markers that are likely associated with this this also causes uh, effects on appetite cachexia uh, and uh, effects on on the on the uh, nausea center in the brain for nausea vomiting and hyperemesis so those are the two GDF 15, and insulin-like growth factor binding protein number 7. Now, that that second compound uh, should sound familiar. And if it, you know, it doesn't sound familiar to me at all, well, it should because its cousin, IGFBP-1, is part of the biomarkers that's in ROM+. That's Amnisure's competitor, okay? Guys, remember that Amnisure, looking for ruptured membranes, is looking for PAMG1. Okay, but ROM plus, which some hospitals may have, uses two biomarkers, right? Amateur gets all of the press because it has market share looking for PAMG1 as the, the protein biomarker in the amniotic fluid. But ROM plus uses amniotic fluid protein, AFP, and insulin like factor binding protein number one. So it's the cousin to this protein, IGFBP7. right. So don't forget, if you ever ask or you're about to take your boards, what is the cause of hyperemesis? Well, we may not know 100 percent, but we know like 90 percent to 95 percent now. And it's typically either GDF 15 and high levels of that or high levels of IGF BP 7. Look, guys, I know I told you medicine isn't always fun. There's just terrible things that happen. Oh, I can't even tell you what we have on our labor and delivery ward today because oh, I just can't. I just can't. Um, uh, well, you guessed it. I mean, it's just it's, it's what everybody dreads. I can't stand it. I can't stand it, and I, I don't want to derail too much because it, it this poor family and the nurses affected and our whole team has this cloud, has this, this weight, and and I think that's good. I mean, it, it, all that stems from compassion for this poor woman uh, with her thirty five week stillbirth. Okay, that we're working through, uh, no known cause, of course, and workup pending, um, and that's why honestly I was supposed to do this episode yesterday when the patient came in, and, and I just couldn't do it. I mean, I got home, uh, I had I had my mandatory beer uh, after that because I'm like I'm, I just I just can't, and and, and she, I'm not even related to her. I mean, I'm not part of her family, but it's that weight, guys. And if you see a stillbirth and it just doesn't affect you, that's great. That I I mean, good, I guess. Um, I'm not there yet. And as children residents today, you know when it gets better finding that diagnosis at a near-term or term patient, you know when that gets better after 23 years, here's what I found. It doesn't. It it, it doesn't. All to say, yes, I get it. What we do, it's super stressful. It's still an honor what we do. It's still a privilege. And things like what we're talking about now, these, these, this geeky kind of science like GDF-15 and insulin-like factor, binding protein stuff, that's proof that medicine really is exciting. That's what I try to instill to the residents. That's what I try to instill to the medical students. That's what I try to instill to, to fellows, to my other faculty, is, man, if you hate going to work, that's a tragedy. I mean, it really is. It's a tragedy. Life's too short to be miserable, man. Then do something else. I mean, it's not worth it to, to treat your coworkers or your patients that way. Ooh, I find this exciting. So yes, this is super geeky. I get it. But this just proves what we're doing. It's fascinating. We're, we're in a discipline that's alive. It's evolving. And, and, and that should pick you up and encourage you. This same author, Marlene Fajo, I mean, man, God bless her. I mean, look at the work that she's doing out of BJOG in 2022. She published this February 25th, 2022, almost to the day two years ago. Whole exon sequencing that uncovers new variants in GDF-15 and its association with hyperemesis gravidarium. Are you kidding me? I mean, first she found the protein and now she's going after the gene itself uh, just to tell you that it's not just, you know, to be on the Today Show and to get something published. This person and her team is trying to change uh, the entire course of pregnancy with nausea and vomiting. Are you kidding me? So I, I find that fascinating. I, I do have a professional crush uh, on on her. and I don't mean that like in a weird, creepy sexual way I just I, I the respect for her is man that's how you change the the needle I'm trying to do this with my little podcast trying to do education we do our things online man I just I, I'm very grateful for people who are dedicated to our discipline to our patients I mean my daughters one day God willing will make may have children I want to be a grandfather later not now later um, and I, I would feel terrible if they had hyperemesis they can't even move because they're puking all the time but if we had the exact gene uh, to either do gene therapy or, or gene diagnostics, are you kidding me? But out of BJOG 2022, Marlena Feijo, whole exon sequencing, uncovers new variants in GDFV15 associated with hyperemesis. Thank goodness for great research. <laughs> As we get ready to wrap this up, I just want to do a quick, uh, just some highlights from this clinical expert series um, because there's so many great things in here. But just briefly to touch on this, remember that electrolyte disturbances in these patients are real. Once you identify a patient with hyperemesis, I mean, do the CHEM7 and just go, oh, sodium's a little low. Okay, well, I'm not an internist, just give her LR. no, no, follow it. Repeat these to make sure that things are normal. Remember, try not to replace calcium until you first replace magnesium, because typically once you correct the magnesium, the calcium will have an adjusted value and you don't want to correct calcium when it's not necessary. So if you have hypomagnesemia, which you correct first, remember the goal is from your calcium macfos is always 1.5 to 2. So goal of magnesium is 1.5 to 2. We talked about the goal of sodium already, but magnesium, 1.5 to 2. And how do you correct magnesium? Easy. You give them mag sulfate, just regular old mag, like for preeclampsia. And the grams that are given have to do with the severity of the hypomagnesemia. So if you are just a little bit under the 1.5, you can do two grams over the hour, just like mag load. If you have more moderate... Uh, magnesium deficiency, typically defined as 1.5 uh, to to that 1.5 mark, um, then you can give four grams over two hours. All right, four grams over two hours. But if your mag level is like 1.1 to 1.2, which is considered kind of more severe uh, hypomagnesemia, then you can give six grams over three hours. And if you're less than one, then yeah, that's pretty darn low. You need to give mag six grams over three hours and then recheck the serum mag level and then repeat that same amount mag sulfate six grams over three hours if it's still under 1.2 right so you can do two grams four grams or six grams over one hour two hour or three hours based on how much grams you're given, uh, and then recheck your mag level. So you use mag sulfate, just like for preeclampsia, and of course, you check levels thereafter appropriately. And then don't forget, check that calcium, and if it's still low after the hypomagnesemia is corrected, then you can give calcium gluconate at 1 to 2 grams and about 50 mLs of 5% dextrose over about 10 to 20 minutes, right? So calcium uh, gluconate to correct Hypocalcemia if it's still present after the mag is corrected. If you have low potassium, don't forget to add potassium chloride in the IV as well. and then once you're taking oral intake, you can try to replace it orally as well. But initially, if you have a, a hypokalemia, don't forget to include additional uh, potassium chloride uh, in the IV and do it slowly. Typically you can do something like 40 milli equivalents of potassium chloride uh, over about four hours. You gotta hit them hard. Initially, when they first present, go ahead and give them just two liters of a physiologic solution like LR, and you got to do that quickly because, again, you want to correct that metabolic um, uh, disturbance uh, quickly. So aggressively rehydrate two liters, typically over about two hours, so one liter per hour. Now You don't want to just give two liters in an hour. That's too fast. But about a liter per hour, so two liters over about two hours initially, and you can use something like lactated ringer. Should they have electrolyte abnormalities, which they are, Almost all do. Don't forget that EKG and look for that initial QT interval as well. Because if you're going to give them Zofran in some people, yes, it's pretty rare. But in some people who are susceptible, remember that Zofran can give a QT prolongation. Now, you got to give them something because you can't leave them puking all the time. So get a baseline EKG, not only to look for any kind of arrhythmia, but to measure that QT interval, because if you use Zofran alone, it can do it. And especially if you do uh, some combination of medications, that propensity to affect the QT goes up. So here's your big offenders, all right? Metoclopramide, that's Reglan, Reglan. With something like Zofran, which we give all the time. I mean, that's what our patient got. It's almost it's almost routine. It's knee jerk. Ah, give her Reglan to be broke kinetic, uh, and also give her some uh, Zofran, so a to hit the serotonin uh, nausea center. That's great. That's the right thing to do. Just remember that in susceptible people, Reglan and Zofran can increase the QT interval. Right. So and that's mainly a Zofran issue. Also remember that if they are on Zofran, be careful giving antihistamines because typically we can try to sedate them. We all know that things like Benadryl, diphenhydramine uh, also has an anti-nausea effect mainly because of its sedation. However, watch this reaction guys, Zofran plus antihistamines, specifically diphenhydramine also can cause a, a, a massive inhibition of reuptake of serotonin and it can increase serotonin levels. So, so you got to know what you're given. So how often do we give uh, Reglan, uh, Zofran, and a little bit of Benadryl? All the time. But just, And it's safe to do that. It's okay. You just got to be aware of some things to, to be on the watch. So Reglan and Zofran, potential QT uh, relationship. Um, Benadryl. Uh, along with uh, uh, Zofran or dancitron, that can increase the risk of, of inhibition of reuptake of serotonin increase serotonin levels uh, almost dangerously. Does it happen a lot? No, but just be aware. And of course, remember that the ability of some medications, specifically phenothiazines, and that's Phenergan, Uh, that either alone or in combination can increase the risk of extrapyramidal symptoms. And the two chief offenders of that is Reglan and uh, Phenergan. Okay, so Reglan and Phenergan together, which again, how often do we write that? All the time. Reglan and Phenergan, extrapyramidal ability. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's just something to be aware about. So Reglan and Phenergan watch extrapyramidal. Reglan and Zofran watch the QT. Zofran and Benadryl watch serotonin. I got that. Okay, so Reglan and uh, fenrigan watch extra pyramidal. Reglan and Zofran watch the QT and the histamine and um, uh, Zofran. Shoot, I almost confused myself. Benadryl and Zofran watch serotonin. When I was an intern at Parkland, it was one of the sites I was looking at corticosteroids to try to treat nausea and vomiting. That was Nicole Yost, uh, who did that as an MFM fellow. And yes, it does work. But remember that there is some weak association with potential orofacial clefts. So you want to wait until that has formed in utero. Typically, that is after nine gestational weeks. So don't use corticosteroids uh, prior to nine weeks. Just kind of wait for the oral cleft to to close, even though that data is kind of weak. And in our institution, we try not to do that until 10 weeks just to be safe. But yes, it does have a role. IV hydrocortisone, uh, or dexamethasone can help reduce nausea and vomiting, at least in that short term. Steroids, of course, are not first line. They're typically second, maybe third line for those real refractory cases. But remember to put types of medications in big boxes here, guys, right? Especially if you're going to do this on the oral boards. And it's very easy. These kind of meds are either related to antihistamine-based derivatives Dopamine antagonists or serotonin antagonists. And remember, that's the ones that actually take care of the nausea. But even things like acid-reducing agents can have a role because they take away the acidity of the stomach and can help prevent certain sequelae. And remember to do an eval for things. Remember, we talked about this at the beginning. There is an association with things like H. pylori infection. In most of the data, there's an odds ratio of over 3 for getting hyperemesis with untreated helicobacter pylori infection. So again, take a look for other things because this remains a diagnosis of exclusion. As we get ready to leave this little section on medications, remember that they're not all just traditional antiemetics, but there is a place for atypical antidepressants slash antipsychotics and even some atypical seizure medications like gabapentum. Yeah, gabapentin has a role here in select cases. That's in the clinical expert series. So don't discount these other medications that have multiple mechanisms of action because, yeah, gabapentin in some patients could be totally effective. And speaking about medications with multiple mechanisms of action, don't forget those atypical antidepressants like mirtazapine. That's Remeron. Man, I did train with Remeron for nausea and vomiting. And that was in some patients after typical first-line medications failed. We stopped those medications to prevent polypharmacy and then added mirtazapine. That's Remeron. Because that is really unique. Remember that traditionally it's used for its noradrenergic and specific. specific serotonergic actions as an antidepressant. I mean, not only does that have serotonergic effects, it also has an antihistamine effect. It's an anti-nausea medication. It's an anxiolytic. It's an antidepressant amazing right so remeron especially useful for cases of hyperemesis gravidarium in cases where there's a pre-existing or an underlying element of depression or anxiety so yeah mirtazapine, remeron super helpful just remember because it does have that serotonergic and antihistamine effect be careful how you use that in polypharmacy so you avoid the interactions that we just talked about And as our last point, this clinical expert series does get into enteral and parenteral nutrition for those really severe refractory cases. Remember that enteral is always best. Enteral meaning using the gut. So NG tube or an NJ tube or a gastrostomy tube, anything that uses the gut seems to be the most physiologic and the least morbid because the gut has to function. It's when the gut goes without food intake, without doing its proper function for a long period of time, that that becomes problematic. So there is a place for NG tubes or nasojejunal tubes, NJ tubes that are post-pyloric but only in cases where other medications have failed and if that fails then parenteral nutrition like with a pick line or a central line comes into play but remember that parenteral nutrition is really complicated because it has a lot of risk including a thromboembolic risk and infection but without question, if you have to use parenteral nutrition, pick lines are the first way to go, and they can be used for up to 14 days. But even they have issues. It requires a large volume of a high fat formula, because remember, you have to use something that's low osmolarity with a PIC line to prevent thrombophlebitis. So you have to use very low dextrose, very low amino acid concentrations, and a lot of volume. So it it, it has a place, but it doesn't have a lot of high caloric value which is why if that doesn't work after 14 days you got to go to a central catheter maternal complications have been shown to be higher in patients with PIC lines which are about 50 to 66 percent rate of complications as compared to a 25 percent incidence of complications with a central venous catheter So yeah, even a central line still has a 25% rate of issues. Remember, most of these issues we're talking about is either things like line sepsis, cellulitis, bacteremia, or thromboembolism. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the new clinical expert series in the Green Journal, the title of which is Inpatient Management of Hyperemesis Gravidarium, and we focused on the two protein causes of nausea, vomiting, and pregnancy in hyperemesis. The first one is GDF-15, and then the second one is incident-like growth factor binding protein number 7. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.